If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Army Ranger and Green Beret, Jack Murphy. Good riddance. Hasta lasagna. Don't get any on you. Marine Scout Sniper, Jason Delgado. It's just something we're believing. I associate that with taste buds. I like freaking chocolate chip mint. Why is his flavor boring? Because his whole life is boring. But whatever. And now, here's your co-host and producer of this operation, Ian Scottell. Softrep.com, on time, on target, episode... 306. I'm Ian Scotto, Jason Delgado, back in studio with me. How's everything going, brother? Awesome, man. Awesome. Glad to be back. Yeah, I I loved the last episode, and the coolest thing, I think, was... So Wes Whitlock's a personal friend of Steve Ralston, who we had on, Mm -hmm. and... I saw he gave us, like, a huge shout-out on Instagram and really loved the episode... And that was just so cool to see. I love, I actually really do love the stuff Rogue American Hero oh, yeah. puts out. I have shirts from them. I'll probably order more. The Invader Coffee Line. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's big time. This guy's big time. Former Marine. Yeah. And he's and he's huge. You see this yeah. guy? He's like a Viking, bro. Literally. The picture of him next to Steve. Like, Steve is by no means a small guy. Like, and dude. And comparison. Like, that dude's like seven foot nine. What? I don't know. He's huge, man. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool to see. He said that it was one of the best podcasts he ever heard. Um, I personally think it was one of the best episodes we ever did, just because Steve's story is amazing, and to be candid it's, like that is... It was a beautiful story, man. I ain't gonna lie, because it's it's it just feels great to hear stories of, like, triumph, you know? Just so stories in where you overcome such you know, adversity, such try, you know, tragedy and just still have that outlook to where you are a beacon in it, you know, in of yourself to others. That's crazy, man. I also feel like to go from, as he said, being afraid of people hearing about his past and his story to, you know, that he lived his whole life in fear of that coming out, he said, and then to come on a podcast that tens of thousands of people are going to hear and tell that story start to finish. Like it, it must feel liberating. It was I'm sure for him, but for me, it was therapeutic, you know, to see someone with that much, much confidence, that much, you know, that, that security, that that's it, man. This is me. This is who I am unapologetically. And I'm, I'm okay with that. That's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah. You know, that being said, uh, you know, big up to Steve, man. Thanks for coming on once again. And everyone is still raving about the, uh, the previous episode. Uh, thanks man for, you know, sharing your story with us and to, uh, you know, all the other future guests that come on here and really get, you know, get down deep like that. That's, that's what we want. You know, I think that's what the people want, you know? Yeah. I'd love to get Steve back on too. You know who I would love to get on? Wes Whitlock. Yeah. What? That would be amazing. We're going to see if we can make that happen, man. Yeah, I'll definitely reach out to Wes. I think he'd be good. I even think he'd be a good guest for Brandon's Power of Thought podcast. I think that would be a, that's a great suggestion, actually. Yeah. I mean, two CEOs. Yeah. So, and, and also it's, you know, there's so much, we've talked about it, like veteran infighting. 
So, which is so stupid. It's cool to see a CEO of another veteran-owned business shout us out and us shout him out. Like, I think that's how it should be, man. We got to have each other's backs. Yeah, the same as us, um, you know, bringing on Donnie O'Malley. I mean, he's a CEO of a media company, and, you know, that's not above us. You know, this is just someone we want to bring attention to because he's hilarious. You know, <laughs> he's bringing the lighter side of things, you know, to to a lot of the issues that are, you know, are plaguing our communities and stuff. But, you know, so, you know, we're not too big for that. We're not too big to bring, you know, extend the hand and say, you know, it's about us, you know, uplifting each other in this community. So that's, that's big ups, man. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. And, and I also see Wes as like an innovator, to be honest, because now there are hundreds of veteran run clothing companies. There's even people who have hit me up on Instagram that are like, hey, I was inspired by the podcast. I'm a business owner now, which is really cool. I've, mm-hmm. I've seen that happen. And he was doing it before a lot of these companies. I heard of Rogue American Apparel many years ago. There weren't that many veteran-owned uh, T-shirt companies or clothing companies. And, and I, you know, I would say that we are innovators now. There's mm-hmm. thousands of veteran podcasts. We were, I believe, the first or one of the first. That's how it starts, man. Just, you know, someone comes up and conceives that idea just chilling one day and it's like man there's nothing like this around and then from there an entire industry is born it's yeah. amazing right how that is you know it's like you'll you'll be the trailblazer and then after that so many others will follow and trace but successfully yeah. that's crazy that's crazy when you, you just create your own industry yeah i agree and, and i guess the one suggestion i would have to people who are thinking of starting a business like i'm not a business owner but Brandon has said it before, and I think it's really true. Like, be original. Don't try to be a second-rate soft rep because that you know it's not an original idea. It's already mm-hmm. been done before. Come up with something new, and I feel like Wes came up with something new. And yeah, there's going to be a lot of copycats out there, but do something that you're passionate about because you came up with this idea. Yeah, definitely. I mean, always try to be an innovator. Try to be that original creator. And another thing, you know, if you're starting out a new business, you can't be afraid to fail. Yeah. So many multimillionaires out there, billionaires, I mean, they failed in so many different endeavors in life. And, you know, through each failure is a lesson learned, you know. So, you know, don't be afraid to fail. And if you're a creator, you know, you have to understand. It's, 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 like, it's like the analogy, like, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Yeah. You know, if no one heard, no one heard it. Did it make an actual sound? It's like okay, if you create something and you're not willing to part with it, did you really, in fact, create it? Yeah. You know, what benefit did it have to the world? So what I'm saying is, as a business owner, don't fall in love with your product to the point where you don't want to share it. Yeah. You know, that's a big thing. And you know, these guys are proud of their stuff, their coffee, their cigars, their, and you know, this is who they are, and they're comfortable in that, and they could become connoisseurs in that. So, and like I said, with, with the whole original thing too, I just saw. Uh, I've seen it a, a while ago, but not to the extent. I saw some Navy SEAL on Fox the other day, and you know they were he was um, advertising a 50 caliber uh, beer bottle opener. Nice, you know. But he got a segment on Fox for this, so it was pretty cool. Think about it. It's yeah. him and his wife, you know, something they could do together after you know life after the teams. You know what I mean? So, man, I love it. I just love that whole veteran industry thing that just opened up. It's so cool. Yeah, and I agree that you have to actually follow through with the ideas. Everybody I meet has ideas. Mm-hmm. Very few of them actually do it. I mean, I'm sure you meet people all the time that are like, oh, I'm, I'm really artistic. I yeah. should do some tattoos. How many of them really do it? And I get pitched all the time. I, not just for tattoos for businesses. I get pitched. Every function we go to, I get pitched 
a business idea. You know, and, you know, I'm not the type of person where, you know, I'll shoot down the idea. I mean, shit, if I have nothing else to talk about at that time, why not? You know, I, I think it's intriguing to engage someone that is ambitious and creative to come up with something like that. But, you know, like you said, I, I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, sell them on false. Yeah, listen, you're going to have to manifest this on your own. This is something that, you know, you have the, 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 the passion and the vision for it. You have to make it happen. I think people are too often seeking for others' approval before they yeah. like go through with the idea. Um, you know, one of the best things I could think of, actually, I've talked about it on, I may have mentioned it on this podcast, I know I mentioned it on Power of Thought, David Show, the artist, um, he's reportedly, I've heard him say it, I don't know how to fact check it, but like the highest paid artist at one point. Wow. Um, he did the artwork for Facebook when mm-hmm. Facebook, you know, the uh, offices before Facebook was this big thing. And I think they offered him maybe like $10,000 or stock options in this future company. Wow. And, you know, Sean Parker said to David Show, do you want stock in Facebook or do you want the money? He was like, what the fuck is Facebook? And, <laughs> and he was like, oh, it's connecting colleges and all this stuff. And David Show said, he talked about this on Howard Stern, actually. He was like, I hate college. I think all that shit is stupid. <laughs> He's like, this idea sounds stupid. He's like, but I believe in you. He's like, you know, just That's as amazing. a person. Yeah. He's like, and if you came up with this idea, I'm, I'm sold. So I'll take, you know, the options. And, you know, he made millions of dollars off of this. So... You don't have to, if you think you have a great idea and someone says, that's fucking stupid, don't let it discourage you if it's a truly good idea. Yeah, I agree. Um, And more so, you know, don't start things and not finish them. That's something I see a lot from people that have really great ideas, that they approach you with that. They'll start something and just let any little thing discourage them or, you know, situation in life that arises or whatever, just sidetracks them. Yeah. And then they just, you know, it's, it's not a good thing. It's not a good habit to get into, you know? So a lot of people say, you know, even if you set out to do the smallest thing, like you had intentions of cleaning your kitchen, you know, execute it, do it, you know, get it out the way. And what, what it is is subconsciously you start, you start conditioning your mind and your body to set, to finish things you set out to do. You know, so that's if you have that inspiration, that, you know, that thought that you, you even manifested by writing down on paper and said, I want to make this happen. Just do it. Why not? You know, if that's something you want to do, I encourage everyone to go out and do it. And like you said, just don't fall in the pits of like, you know, being an imitator. Yeah. Vice yeah. an innovator, you know. So, yeah, Admiral McRaven gave that talk about making your bed every day. And it went like completely viral on Facebook, on YouTube. And it was just like you have to set out every morning and just have some task and mm-hmm. complete that task and it'll get you in the habit of doing of, of the rest of the day completing tasks rather than sitting around. So I thought that was a really powerful thing. I saw people on my Facebook who, to be honest, have like no interest in the military sharing this Admiral McRaven speech. So. Well, because it, it transcends all, all, all aspects in life. I mean, you know, look at Jocko's. Jocko's thing is, like I said, work, waking up at like 0415, 0430 every day and, you know, showing the world. And then I see people that, you know, follow him on um, Twitter and they'll ask him, you know, hey, Jocko, you know, does everyone have to wake up at that time? You know, his response, you know, which is what I thought was awesome, you know, was like, and I'm just, you know, this is just, a, you know, in reference to the point we we're trying to make that, you know, it transcends military. This goes into everyday life. He says, it doesn't matter what time you wake up, but I will say this, if you're waking up every day at 10 a.m., 
get ready to just lose in life in general. <laughs> yeah. Unless, you know, to be fair, people have different if, work If schedules. you, you know, have the night, you know, the yeah, night shift. Yeah, there's people who do work no, I, But I think, you know, I, I know obviously you that's what he meant, too. You I, know, you know the, the reason I guess I say it is, like, I realize with podcasts, radio, there's a lot of truck driver listeners and like those people have to be up crazy hours. It is not a usual. They're, they're actually controlled. The hours that they're allowed to work is actually controlled yeah. nowadays because there's been you know serious, serious, serious of accidents. You know with um, uh, tractor trailer drivers and stuff. And the, the federal government has come in and actually uh, you know some put a lot of regulations and restrictions on the amount of hours consecutively consecutively they could work. Well, I remember the Tracy Morgan. Yeah incident exactly um, and that's another big a lot of a lot came from that as well yeah you but know? my point being some of those guys have to be doing stuff at 4 a.m like yeah. i don't think people yeah. realize how important they are like everything the microphone i'm talking to the board here yeah. the computer it was all brought here by a truck yeah. so like these people who you know not to get off on a tangent but these people who think green energy is going to replace everything well mm. until there's green energy that could transport everything that i'm looking at in this room you know it, truck drivers are a really important part of what makes America great, I think. There's a lot of things we can do idealistically, but the road to that it would probably be worse than, you know, you know, finally just arriving. Because yeah. so, think about it. You got, it's like, you know, trying to make this government, you know, socialist. I mean, you just got to deconstruct everything we've been about. And, and, you know, that process would just destroy the world even, not just the United States. And then, you know, once you get there, it's like, okay, that's a new idea for you. How are you going to handle it? And then, you know, all the growing pains. And I was like, what's the point? You know, yeah. like, I, so I just like, feel like I don't, I don't shout out the truck drivers often enough. No, no, the truck drivers also, my point is like with the energy, you know, like, okay, you want to make everything green, like you said, you know, that's cool. But I don't see us coming away from fossil fuels, like you said, any times. I, I don't see the possibility of that. Yeah, it would be great if it's, it's affordable and it's, you know, reliable, but... And I don't believe it's running out, like they say. Like it's running out. I mean, I remember it, you talked yeah. about this in a previous show. It's just it's it, something that is constantly produced. I've heard. You know, it's funny. I remember you guys talking about this. I had emails that had a different point of view than yeah. you. I have to pull it I up. I don't know. I don't. We'll what see. do I know? If, hey, if you have a different point of view, softrep.radio at softrep.com. Um, you know, when you were saying the Jocko waking up thing, I thought it was interesting. We had uh, Navy Seal Chris Fussell on because he had a little bit of a different take on that. I remember him mm -hmm. saying. If you wake up at a certain time, well, what's the purpose for waking up at that time? I don't know if you remember him saying, he, he was like, do you get up and meditate at that time? Do you listen to Metallica? I mean, if that's, pumped yeah, up for if the, that's day? the case. He was like, there's got to be a purpose You can't just wake it. up and sit on your couch. Yeah, I think we talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. that'll be just like strange, you know? Um, and I, I think Tony Robbins says he does that because he feels like the hours of 04 to 05 every day, between the hour of 04 and 05, um, that's when his best uh, his best ideas come to him for some reason. Yeah. So he wants to be up during that time. It's just that's what he says. Um, and I, Jocko just freaking you know crushes it. You know because he always posts immediately after you know his uh, uh, deadlift bar with sweat all over the floor and stuff. So I mean that's his routine. Yeah. You know so yeah they're not not doing anything. I mean like me when I wake up that early I listen to the news and I get prepared to hit the gym. Then I hit the gym. You know, and then I'm in the gym for a couple of hours. And that's the beauty of waking up early, though. Like you can spend legit no time on your I mean, legit time on your body and your mind. Like you could even read chapters in a book that you want to catch up on yep. and then still have the rest of the day to look forward to. 
That's what I like. Instead of like some guys like for tattooing, I'm sorry to just keep running off, no. but for tattooing, um, it's like if I'll get a job during that day, I'll get a commission. Instead of staying up till two, three in the morning trying to draw, tired and exhausted and uninspired. So that that's all it, it, the the work reflects that all those yeah. emotions. I'll go to bed early, like at eight o'clock or nine o'clock, and I'll wake up at you know zero five you know, 30 or 06 or whatever. And I would draw for two hours, drinking coffee and listening to the news. And that way I'm fresh and I'm attacking that, you know, with a new set of eyes. So that way I can give them the best I have to offer. So that's why I agree with the early waking up thing. Yeah. I'd be inspired to wake up that early if I lived where uh, Tony Robbins does. You ever see in, uh, I saw that documentary on Netflix, like the mm-hmm. house that he wakes up yeah. in with the fucking like amazing with that view cold and dunk jacuzzi. Tank that he oh, yeah, it's in, a yeah. dunk. T- yeah, I was like, man, that's awesome. So uh, anyway, we got Scott Houston coming on, author of Echo and Ramadi, the firsthand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. It comes out February twentieth. So uh, let's get right to him. We're honored to be joined by Scott Using, Marine Corps major with 24 years of service, 10 deployments. He conducted operations in 60 countries, also special operations capable. And uh, even though there's no history with you, Jason, you guys pretty much did a lot of the same things, which we'll get into. Uh, but we, the- yeah, we were actually in the same unit for a small, a small amount of time. He obviously had to move on to bigger and better things. So, <laughs> but you guys never really met prior to no, this, right? Well, Scott- I'm not, I don't. I wouldn't remember because I was just, you know. Just a rung on the bottom, uh, you know, bottom of the totem pole, you know. What I yeah. Mean? So Scott originally reached out to us, but when I saw his his resume and the book that he's writing, I figured you'd be an awesome guest to have on. So if we could just get into your background and you know what inspired you to join the Marines, I think people would love to hear that. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, Jason and I do share a background. We served in Third Battalion, Fourth Marines together again up in. One of the most luxurious bases in the Marine Corps, 29 Palms in the hot desert. That's awesome. Uh, so our paths may have crossed. He may have been steered away from me at that point as a small elite scout sniper. But uh, I was a company executive officer in one of the line companies. But, uh, yeah, really, really glad to be on the show and great for you guys telling military stories and supporting veterans. Just a great, great message you guys have. So uh, my Entrance into the Marine Corps, I enlisted uh, early on, right out of high school, after a not-so-stellar career in high school of uh, bad grades and fighting and racing my motorcycle on abandoned stretches of the highway and running from the cops. And uh, I was introduced to the Marine Corps recruiters by a friend of mine, and having led kind of a high-risk lifestyle, even as a young adult— with a lack of supervision, uh, the Marines seemed like a natural fit. They were the biggest group of risk takers I had ever met. And that kind of carried over into my military career after I enlisted. And then shortly there, uh, after I went to college, fared much better and then be, became a commissioned officer in the infantry. And, uh, after 24 years that, uh, you know, I've just been really blessed to, serve with some of the greatest people uh, I've ever met. So so let me get this straight. You went in initially on an enlisted contract, and then you decided that it'll probably be smarter for you to go on and become an officer, and you're what we call a Mustang now. So that's pretty awesome. Um, 
do you feel like you had any type of advantage being that you were enlisted prior to taking over uh, command? Or should I say well, uh, a, a platoon, you know, of infantry marines and getting ready to combat? Did, did being a Mustang somehow gave you some sort of benefit or some sort of a, a plus up? Sure. I think when I made the decision to, I got off active duty and I, I, I'm still drilled in the Marine Reserve component as a machine gunner uh, in the Chicago area. And while I was getting my degree uh, at Illinois State and then got my commission. And I don't ever say that being an officer, you know, being enlisted made me a better officer. It didn't. And for those that don't understand what a Mustang is, uh, you know, Mustang is a horse that has a couple different breeds in him. So uh, in the military, if you're enlisted an officer, uh, they, they call you a Mustang officer. So uh, it didn't make me any better. I think it just gave me a greater appreciation for the Marines time. And I was always hyper-conscious uh, of how the Marines were training. I never wanted them doing mindless tasks, uh, standing in formations, just waiting for information, because I always knew that they needed to be training. And I always emphasize the importance of that, of training as if each day were their last day. Because we in the military and those that have served never know what's over the horizon. So we always need to make sure that we're utilizing uh, our time effectively. And I think that was probably one of the biggest considerations that I had when I transitioned uh, to the dark side, as they say, as an officer from enlisted. But uh, I don't ever say that it made me a better officer because there's plenty of officers serving and have served that never were enlisted. And I don't think that uh, I, it just gave me a better perspective, I think, Jason. No, that's awesome. And, you know, I totally agree with you. There's officers that weren't, you know, prior enlisted that I, I wholeheartedly admire. Um, I'm just letting you know from our point of view, which you were there, you know, if I find out an officer is a Mustang, you know, I'm looking at him like, you know, okay, you know, this guy kind of knows what it was to kind of be on the ground and in the mud with us, you know, even though infantry officers do get down, you know, <laughs> even yeah, with the lack does. of, uh, it- even with the lack of uh, enlisted experience. But, you know, that to me is just something that I'm going to, as, you know, being, you know, someone directed under you, you know, I'm going to look at that and I'm going to admire that. Yeah. And you can appreciate this too, is there's, there's plenty of extraordinary enlisted uh, Marines and service members that have master's degrees, some, some even higher. And it's, it's not about the the amount of education you have. It's really about what you want to do in the military. And it really boils down to leadership. And I always say that there is no such thing as combat leadership, just leadership. And I never subscribed to the idea or the notion that because one had been in combat or shot at or injured, it made them a better leader. Leaders lead in any condition. And you can understand that although some may shine a little brighter under these chaotic conditions, real leaders control the situation in the absence of that chaos and those those points of boredom, you know, training for Restlessness and boredom is not a mission essential task, Jason, but mm-hmm. it's something good leaders have to deal with to keep the Marines sharp when all that madness surrounds. Think, yeah. And great about my experience was that the leadership that was demonstrated by my Marines and the lieutenants uh, that I served with and, and as I rose in the ranks, they made a difference between life and death on most days. But they were lucky, though. Uh, they were fortunate to have some of the best and most seasoned enlisted Marines by their side to guide them along the way. Because again, I never subscribed that officers need to know their place, suggesting that, you know, 
officers shouldn't be seen doing menial tasks that only enlisted Marines have to do. You know, I was a part of a team mm-hmm. and my place was always with my Marines, period. And I like to think that they welcomed that because if there was gear to be moved, I moved it with them. If there was you know, shit to be shoveled, I had a shovel in my hand. If there was a firefight, I was in it. If there was a patrol, I was on it. And that's just the way I felt I would be more effective in a leadership role was trying to be connected to those that I led. And I felt it was not only my privilege, but my ultimate responsibility because I was entrusted to the, the care and, and safety and, and welfare of all those those young warriors. Yep. So definitely, you know, a subscriber to the one of the, our oldest mantras in the Marine Corps, leave from the front, you know, and not from the back and totally get that. That's and, you know, and to this day, that's why you get so much praise as, as an officer, you know, and we're, we're always looking, especially because you're that you're somewhat of that 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 father figure or that uh, authoritative figure to us when we're in these, uh, you know, high threat areas or high threat environments. So, you know, we're always putting a lot of pressure on you to kind of guide us morally. Also, like you said, you know, when it comes to uh, keeping steel sharp, you know, with training, you know. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of pressure on a Marine officer. And I just want to know, how did you handle that? Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, what was your earliest age, actually? As a, uh, a good question. What was your early age, earliest age when you actually got commissioned and had your first, uh, your first uh, platoon? I believe I was 27 years old. And so I was a little older than the average bear, uh, even as an officer, which I think give, gives one a lot of life experience. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you can't learn in school or the military can't teach you that. And what's what's more important to me is that that pressure is is there. I mean, it it's it exists. The, the pressure is all around you, and it, it exists not only for officers but the young enlisted Marines. And when I was in Iraq, well, when I was in Ramadi, Iraq, in two thousand six, uh, in the deadliest city of of all Iraq at the time. It took probably years of age and wisdom to really understand that I was a captain at the time, a pretty senior captain at at, at 36 years old. And I would look at those young Marines and I would task them to do things that were almost superhuman acts. Mm. And as I wrote my book, Echo and Ramadi, I noticed a trend as I was going through. And the average age of these young men, these lance corporals and corporals and sergeants, was 20 to 22 years old. And what I was asking them to do and how they achieved it was so remarkable to me. They never let me down in that capacity because they would fight day in and day out and just do amazing things on the battlefield and continue to take care of each other better than anything else they'd known. And all I saw back then was Sergeant Delgado Mm. or Sergeant uh, Smith. I didn't see a 22-year-old kid. I just saw that Marine with his rifle. And again, it took years of, uh, of experience to really look back on that and realize the gravity of what I was asking these guys to do was so extraordinary. And I, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to how they performed uh, on the battlefield under such chaotic conditions uh, that there was so much friction as I, I use that word friction to yeah. describe the uncertainty of, of what we experienced. It was just remarkable. So Scott, why, 
why Echo? Why that unit and why that company? And, and was that like one of your most, I guess, definitive moments in your life? Was it something that you just sat down and said, you know, people need to hear about this? Well, over 24 years in the military, I think it was absolutely probably the pinnacle of my career for an infantry officer to be able to serve uh, in combat, leading an entire company of over 250 Marines, soldiers and sailors really doesn't get any better. Uh, and that's hard for a lot of listeners to understand it is why young men and women do what they do and serve. Or to know people that serve in the military, they make up less than one half of 1% of the entire population in America, over 330 million people. So the fact that they do these things, uh, the only analogy I use is that they train for months and months on end. And when they're there in combat, it's game day every single day for them. I mean, imagine if the NFL football players trained every day and practiced and there was never a game on Sunday. That's the only way I can relate it to these people. But the reason I wrote Echo and Ramadi um, is to honor the sacrifices of the Marines that fought and also the families that supported us while we did. And they continue to support us this day. I mean, I conducted almost 100 interviews with the Marines and family just to make sure that this story was told right and it was balanced with not only the tactical but also the emotional, because that's what's important to me is telling about the people. I don't want to read things about events or things. I want to read about characters and people that made a difference. And that's what I think that these young men uh, and their families did. And in Ramadi in 2006, Echo Company, really bound together by that brotherhood and the honor that we have on bumper stickers and flags and the danger they face every day. And it was such an environment and they battled in a war in which the front line, as you know, everywhere. And it was, it was a war that almost was absent of rules. And it was marked by this unremitting chaos and a ruthless insurgency and an enemy that wore no uniform, which was mm-hmm. equally as challenging for those on the battlefield to fight and to temper those young men and women on how to respond to that was a real leadership challenge. So the story is, is my story, but it's also their story. It's a very intimate story as I led my men through those firefights. And I try to bring the readers to that urban battlefield in Iraq in um, how I describe it in such an unvarnished detail and the loyalty that the Marines shared and that savagery of war that, you know, left behind those you know, the scars that we all bear today, not only on their bodies, but also in their minds. Um, I just think it's, it's really an honor to be able to share that type of unprecedented narrative about the highlights and the prices that were paid by both the families and the Marines, unlike any other. So that's, yeah. that's why I thought this story was something that, that I really needed to share. So there's a story of the individuals in that unit and the sacrifices they've made and, you know, just the teamwork in general to make sure you guys do, you know, the absolute best you possibly could. Yeah, definitely. It is. It. Um, can you? It's, uh, it's about the, yeah, it's obviously about the fighting and the friction, but it's, you know, there's times where uh, readers will be heartbroken. There's times they'll be exhilarated. There's times they'll laugh at some of the, some of the crazy things that Marines do, even into the, the most chaotic conditions. And it's just, 
I think there's points, at least for me, it was really an unforgettable account of, of our, our fight uh, at, at its sharpest edge. When that company of Marines, Jason, was not a special elite unit uh, by any stretch of the means, but there was this indescribable chemistry mm-hmm. that we shared in Echo Company that is remarkable. And to this day, we still stay very connected uh, to all the Marines that served in that company, probably because of the adversity that we shared mm-hmm. during that time that only those that experienced it can understand. Yeah. And so for the, um, for the not, uh, military jargon savvy, uh, audience, uh, listener, audience member, um, can you explain, um, the term echo and, you know, as far as how does that, uh, what role that plays within a unit? You know, so that, you know, just break it down. Why, why you, why you named the book Echo and Ramadi? The title of the book is based off of Echo Company, which each battalion in the Marine Corps designates its, its rifle companies by a phonetic letter designation. So in second time, fourth Marines, for example, we had, uh, Echo Company, Fox Company and Golf Company. And, you know, in, in three, four, you know, we had, um, you know, Lima Company, uh, India Company, and Kilo Company. Correct. So there's, there's phonetic letters that we use to designate it. And Echo and Ramadi, the, the title that we chose for this book, I think plays on twofold. You know, it's about the company, obviously, Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines in Ramadi. But it also speaks to those darker echoes of what resonate with, with the Marines and the families after we left the battlefield because mm. it's effects of post-traumatic stress and the tragic aftermath that we've endured, uh, losing Marines. It's just, uh, a reality that, uh, again, is it's not some video on Facebook about a 22 a day push-up challenge. These are real, yeah. uh, people. There were faces and names and men and women that were known to me personally. And in my battalion alone, sadly, over 50 names mm. are etched in stone on granite in various cemeteries on, and monuments. So we, we shouldn't ever forget that, the, the sacrifices that they made. I, I, I know it's a very hard subject to talk about, but uh, that, that loss and the, the continued uh, sacrifice that um, is made just never needs to be forgotten. And I, I always have to talk about our Gold Star families that are such an important part to me in uh, not only writing this great story in which they shared their their stories as well, but they, they just can't be described as ordinary people. And I say this time and again, they're they're extraordinary people who give so much and and they sacrifice so much and they lose so much and they continue to love so much. It's just indescribable. And you you've lost uh, brothers and we felt their pain through yes, the sir. loss of our fellow Marines. Um, but we've also felt their love, and I felt their love so many times and received it unconditionally from so many soothing voices on the other end of the phone who've spoken to me over the years, not, not as a Marine or as a commander, but as a mother or father or brother would, uh, you know, to any son or brother. And it has made me humble beyond words because I've, I've really – never felt so cared for by so many whom I ultimately felt indebted to. And they 
have continued to unselfishly offer me a great sense of relief and compassion and forgiveness mm -hmm. uh, all at once. All of those life-changing events that none of us had control over on the battlefield. Well, let's talk about that forgiveness because I think that's important to mention because you know, considering our the majority of us, our age at that point in time, um, and also our mindset, which is a very aggressive, you know, uh, aggressive mindset where basically we're just, you know, we rebel in testosterone. Um, you know, there's decisions, especially as a commander, I can only imagine cause you got up to the ranks of field grade officer, you know, and that, that, you know, <laughs> you know what they say, you know, more, more, more money, more problems, right? And well, it's, it's same, same thing, you know, more rank, more, yeah. you know, responsibility. It's r ridiculous at those levels, you know? So the forgiveness, what, what, what do you mean? Do you mean like as far as having to make those tough calls and look your guys in the eye and say, you know what, that's something that had to be done? And then, you know, after a while you guys came and reconciled, is that what you meant? Yeah, absolutely. It's an inevitable fact that as, as hard as I trained my Marines, as uh, is, is much supervision as I gave them, it's an inevitable fact when you go in combat that you're going to lose Marines and you have to train and you have to prepare yourself for that fact because combat is a very real thing and there's no real way to put it, but that severity and the reality have a tendency to escape your attention. If you're not in the moment mm -hmm. being shot at or mortar or blown up in an IED explosion or whatever else that repetitiveness and the boredom and the, the chaos that surrounds you just, just really can't exist, but it does. And it, it really doesn't seem real until you have to have this sobering uh, moment when you look the parents of a 19 year old Marine mm. in the eye and have to express your sympathies for the loss of their son or daughter, who is ultimately your responsibility. And the fact that they can reach out, wrap their arms around us and make us feel so cared for is, it's just remarkable. That's the forgiveness that I, I I'm talking about. It's yeah. it's really something hard to articulate, but you feel it. And there's probably plenty that don't have that, and there's some that isolate themselves and can't deal with their loss because they lost. Jason and you know we sacrificed. We signed freely. We took an oath, and we decided to serve and defend and uh, you know honor that flag and. And our brothers are not buried under it, but it's a choice and a sacrifice that we made and that the brave warriors that serve our country make willingly. But our Gold Star families, they lost. They did not have that choice. And that's a distinct difference that I tell uh, anyone, that, you know, that, that's listening. So I think it's important to give you this platform because I think you have so much to offer. Um, what... What advice would you give a young officer coming into the Marine Corps or coming into the military in general, one going into the infantry uh, field? Be authentic. And it's not just about the individual Marine. It's all about the individual Marine. And that's the most important thing that they always need to remember. I always try to put the needs of those that I was entrusted to lead above my own. And if you do that, you can't go wrong. But I will say this, too, and I've said this before, is that no one's perfect. I most certainly was not perfect. And I will admit probably more than most 
because I'm not on active duty anymore, that mm-hmm. I had more of my share of screw ups uh, and struggles in, in throughout my career, both enlisted and officer. But the advice is this, is that there are times in, in life when everyone's uh, whether it's in daily life or whether it's throughout your career, um, you know, again, I have my share of challenges and my share of struggles, but I, and I try and write it in my book, but I think the lesson that I learned, not only while I was on active duty in the Marine Corps, but over time, you know, I found out that that, that pattern of risky behavior that I was so accustomed to, which was also extremely dangerous and very detrimental to my health, both mm-hmm. mentally and physically. Uh, I thrived on that. And again, like I said earlier, even as a young child, I took those risks and that thrill uh, and that feeling never dissipated as it spilled over into my adult life. And as a Marine, um, it was completely acceptable lifestyle for most in the Marine Corps and almost embraced by the Marines I served with, both enlisted and officer. Uh, And I think the biggest challenge for me throughout my life of high risk and that type of friction and that uncertainty of combat and the fast pace was really the absence of that friction when I transitioned to Marine Corps. That's what I had a difficult time adjusting to because it was never the fighting, the firefights or lamenting the dead bodies or losing sleep. Uh, That wasn't it for me. It was the lack of friction because there's absolutely no way to recreate or replicate that type of adrenaline or excitement mm. that any is really the toughest battle. Um, so I think that's important that young Marines and officers understand that no one's perfect. And there's times in life that I've slipped because that's life. Life's slippery. And there's points in your career and life that you lose traction. Mm-hmm. You slip fall. And for me, it was a process to share those times in my life, but it's a decision I made and write about pain painfully sometimes, but it was done so only in the hopes that others can learn that it's all right not to be perfect. It's all right to know you're going to fall at some point. I've fallen, but the real measure of success, and this is not just a cliche, it's picking yourself back up, mm-hmm. carrying on with mission, whatever that mission is, whether it's in your career, in the military, or any lot in life. Um, but I think through age and wisdom, again, you feel it coming as you lose ground, you know, that traction. And you mentioned this earlier because most veterans will ignore it, thinking that they are absolutely impervious to the effects of gravity because that's how we're trained. And when you lose traction, that ground beneath you, make no mistake about it, you're going to land hard. And some land harder than others, but each fall, you just have to continue to learn and adjust. And I think that throughout the process of writing Ekwin Ramadi, um, and despite those punctuated moments of humility, they made me feel more human. And it allowed me to identify those slipperiers in life that were on the road ahead of me. So that's a long answer to a short question, wow. uh, because I, I think I've got plenty of experience and I offer advice, but that's the great thing about advice. Take the advice you like, don't take the advice you don't like because Absolutely. everybody's got advice. Yeah. So uh, there's good advice and bad advice in which we can learn from both. So one of the last things I'm wondering is, as you're wrapping this up, Scott, is you know after a highly decorated career, 24 years of service, what made you say, you know what, I'm moving on to another part of my life, and what are you up to now? You know, besides obviously putting out this book, which we're really excited for. 
Well, the decision to transition from the military, I always said, you know, hey, when it stops being fun, you need to move on. <laughs> and um, I, after after a really great career, uh, I was at that point where I decided I, I, I wanted to move on and challenge myself. And I think that's what Marines learn throughout their career is continually challenge yourself. So that's what I made the decision to do. And as a disabled vet, you know, I had some, you know, impact related injuries, uh, you know, and so, you know, I just felt that that was wearing on me as well in addition to everything. So I transitioned and, and I don't look back. I worked in the private sector for a little bit. And then my real passion was telling this story. And that's what I woke up wanting to do every morning was to share great stories about the great things our military service members do and to help veterans. And I do that not only through my writing, my public speaking, but also through charity work and interaction. Uh, I'm the executive director of Save the Brave, which helps connect veterans through outreach programs. And it's a certified nonprofit that one of my junior Marines started from Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, Nick Velez. My uh, wayward saw gunners, who is a light machine gunner and uh, is just doing amazing things now. So helping veterans and staying connected to them really makes me happy. That's my passion. And I'm very fortunate not only to be connected with such great organizations like Save the Brave. And uh, just just yesterday, I was invited up to uh, another event with the Semper Fi Fund. And we are the mighty that are doing amazing things to help veterans. Uh, and that, that really is the best feeling in the world. And there's so many people that don't know how to help charities. Some think it's just writing a big check, which we love big checks. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but it's also volunteering your time. Yeah. Uh, going up on Saturday, driving to go show up at an event and support and really put some skin in the game and be there for the Marines or the veterans and listen to their stories or help move tables, do whatever, golf, give money. But put some skin in the game. It's not just a bumper sticker that says, I support our troops. It's much, much more than that. Absolutely. I think that's an important message. And, you know, on some level, it's preaching to the choir of this audience, because I think this audience truly does realize that. And I know that most of the guys who listen, whether they're veterans themselves or civilians, they go out there and they, they do do the work in helping veterans. And we always try to give a spotlight to charities doing great things and veterans doing great things for their fellow veterans. And, you know, you deserve to put that story out. I think after nearly two and a half decades of service, mm -hmm. you know, it's it, it's time for most people to step back and say 10 deployments. Yeah, 10 deployments to step back and say, hey, I want to tell people this story. I want to help out my fellow veterans. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we salute you for it. The uh, The website is echoinramadi.com, Facebook and Twitter, at Echo in Ramadi. Uh, we'll definitely have you back on, Scott, as the book uh, comes closer, because the book comes out February 20th. Please pre-order it. You know, that helps authors like yourself out. The book, once again, is Echo in Ramadi, the first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. Uh, anything else before we wrap this up? I just want to say thanks to, to you and Jason for having me on the program again. It was really a pleasure. Love coming on programs like this. And I uh, can't thank you enough. Look forward to being back after the book comes out in February. Absolutely. And I, if you're ever in New York, we'd, we'd love to have you in the studio. I'll be out there in February. 
Hey, once again, thanks for coming on. And I did notice, uh, FYI, before we send you off, you are catching one hell of a buzz on Facebook. Congratulations. And hopefully your pre-sales reflect that, man. Definitely right before your book drops, you got to come back on. Yeah, we're, we're doing good. So thanks, thanks for the vote of confidence, man. I appreciate it. You, you know, on from multiple <laughs> angles, how difficult it is to be in combat and to serve and transition and to write a book. And man, it's just, yeah, you know, it feels like you're being stretched it, all over it, the place. <laughs> I, know, I know you get it. All but right, brother. It, so. Well, real honor and a pleasure having Scott using on and man, what a background! I do have to say, for, to go that well, could you imagine of being, being in service that long? Like That's it, ridiculous. And like I said, the amount of responsibility once you get up to that point is just overwhelming. I'm pretty sure. And you know, he he did it successfully with honor, and you know, even to the point where he has lessons to you know uh, to break off everyone else, fo- try to follow in his footsteps. Good job. Most of the guys I know, whether it's you, Jack, Brandon, serve. You know, I'd say. You, at the very max, maybe 15 years. It's usually much less than that. Like, what do you think drives a guy to go 24 years to to stay at this goal and, and keep advancing in the military? It's It's got to be a passion at that point. It's It's got to be that thing that you live for, you know. Um, also, it all depends on, you know, how much are you in the immediate threat, you know. So... For guys in the SOCOM community, um, you, you got like <clears throat> you got guys in you know Green Beret SEAL teams that are just operators until you know they're well into their uh, senior enlisted ranks, and that that can constitute anywhere from you know fifteen to twenty plus years, and they're still operating. So it, you know the reason why I would say more SF Green Beret guys you know type get out at at twelve or fifteen years or whatever what have you is because they're just their lifestyle their high threat is such is is so so much is so accelerated that they think a lot about their mortality so that in and of itself becomes wearing mentally so you you're gonna have to make that decision across you know at some point to just get out but um at 20 25 years you know at some point you you have to transition into the administrative logistical portion of the military and the inner workings and the command and control structure of the military where you're not on the front line as much per se you know you're just in the backgrounds making sure things are ran so i think it's probably a little bit easier a little bit more of a neutral setting that you can just coast out out. but you know that's that, that being said you know i think guys with the background that we come from you know we, you won't see that 20 some plus years yeah you know you will for other guys that are like groomed for commands you know mainly officers and stuff but with the enlisted man it just i don't think your knees can hang that long you know what i mean yeah but well, I, I do think of a guy like terry shepherd you know yeah. green beret just pretty recently retired which mm-hmm. i thought was you know remarkable so there are those there's guys. there's there's examples of guys that are like i said that's their passion they're not going anywhere else and there's there's guys that are like in the tier one teams that dude where else are you gonna go you're the man and you know you're the man and you're living in the moment you know you're like instead of being you know praised as a hero for you know actions that you did prior to you know whatever you know you're you're there you're in it no one knows you but you're actively in the fight like 
that to them is so attractive. They're going to stay there as long as they're willing to fight. My point is the moment you're out of the fight and you have to start getting into the background and the inner work workings of running the machine and keeping the machine oiled, which I mean is the bigger uh, picture of the military, whatever DOD you're working in, you know, that gets kind of mundane. You know what I mean? And for guys that, you know, live at, at such a high, uh, high pace or high peak point of testosterone, that shit is torture. Yeah. Well, with that, Throat Punch of the Week, I, I, I feel like this was a fun one, I guess, but I, I really do hate when political correctness seeps into, like, embedded parts of the culture that people <laughs> just love. So I, I just couldn't believe coming across this story. So a guy made a documentary talking about how offensive a poo of a character was on The Simpsons and this Indian stereotype of him, you know, doing yoga and the cow stuff and him working at the Quickie Mart, which is like 7-Eleven. But I, I feel like this has always been part of the humor at the show. I'm not throat-punching this guy for putting out the documentary. I can't believe that the Simpsons are considering caving into this pressure of either drastically altering the character of Apu or just getting rid of him. I mean, I feel like every animated show, and the Simpsons were innovators in this, pokes fun at stereotypes. You mm -hmm. know, you have the... You have uh, the donut-eating cop who's oblivious to everything. Are cops going to say this is offensive to law enforcement? You know, I don't think they would because they're not pussies, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, this is, and this is also why I think South Park is such a superior show now because they've constantly said fuck political correctness. Yeah. I think it's becoming, it's not becoming, it is, it is something that we enjoy as taboo, but it's becoming more so that in in that the the, the media or, or whatever's out there right now attacking manhood you know attacking our our beliefs and just not taking yourself seriously and chuckling and having a good time and you know it's just not, you don't have to keep being pc about everything right? there's a lot of us that feel that way i think there's an attack on that and i think that stuff you know it's it's taboo for us to watch because it's funny but, you know, it, it is to a point offensive That's, uh, to some people. It's just, uh, you know, at what point do you want to say don't take yourself too serious? You know, I think it's it's comical. But that's why. I, you know, I, I agree it's comical. It's funny. Yeah. But, you know, I also see the other side is what I'm trying to get at. I also see the point. So I don't know, man. Because, you know, how many kids get made fun of with that accent in school? You know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm I'm 100% for the throw punch on this. I no, mean, I got you. <laughs> personally, uh you know, and that's why I've always loved South Park, because I think that they took over where The Simpsons left off. Simpsons has not been a great show for quite a few years, in my opinion. And South Park is constantly on the edge of offending absolutely everybody. Everyone gets Jews it. to yeah. Scientologists to black people, you know, and they even went as far. The only time South Park was ever censored and it was not up to them is when they showed a lot. Yeah. And Comedy Central censored it because that was the height of the Charlie Hebdo stuff and, you know, all this crazy shit going on. So they were scared for Matt Stone and Trey Parker, but they personally wanted to show a cartoon of Muhammad. And I shouldn't say a lot. I was, you know, yeah. They wanted to show a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad because they've always maintained that we're going to offend whoever we want. But I feel like that's not the case. I, I think there's a, there's a no-joke intentional... Uh, avoidance of the stereotyping of the the Islamic extremists. South Park always has done it. That's the thing. 
Yeah, with the Saddam and hell and all that other yeah. stuff, well, the Osama bin Laden. And then also, um, and, uh, what's his name again? Well, I'm forgetting uh, who, who it was. Um, Al Zarahiri, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the Family Guy episode. And then they wanted to show a cartoon of Muhammad. They personally were all for it, and Comedy Central censored it. To be honest, I've always maintained, and I know Will Cal feels this way, South Park, I feel, has always been a very conservative show. It's always been very conservative-leaning in its politics. Consistent. And that's why people don't like it, because they are they go out of their way to offend liberals, but they also will offend everybody. Yeah. And, and I've always loved that about it. And I feel like that like that's the beauty of... Uh, it's funny. It's almost like that free speech stuff. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, I want to hear some funny shit. You know, just because it's on uh, national radio or on television doesn't mean that you have to cater to everyone. You know, and that, oh, I'm, I have to watch who I offend with this, you know. So I, I agree that it's, it's pretty ridiculous that if they consistently uh, use, you know, stereotypes for their material in their comedy, that don't, don't change it now. Just stick to who you are. But I do realize that it's, it's to a point where I could see how someone would be offended by it. You understand what I'm saying? I could see. I do. I'm just. I'm surprised to hear a more PC Jason Delgado. No, it's not. It's just. I, I. I feel it because it's like maybe, like maybe not to do an entire fucking documentary on how you know Apu is being portrayed or whatever, and that somehow you know disrespects your entire culture. I don't want to watch a fucking entire hour of your point. You know? I, but I don't even care about this guy making it. I, I can't believe that the Simpsons would even consider. That's what I'm saying. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, guy. yeah, if you're gonna renege on who you are and your consistency, that's where you deserve to throw punch on that. I mean, because if you feel a certain way about your material and your 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 work of art, then stick with it. Yeah, you I, know? And here's I agree. The thing. There. I wrote this down, you know, while I was kind of writing notes. I know that S- Sam Simon, who died, you know, was one of the creators of the Simpsons, was a very liberal guy. You know, he was vegan, very pro-animal activist. He spent, like, his fortune on protecting animals and all this stuff. And, yeah, he was a very left-wing guy. But he helped create these characters, um, you know, and I don't think it was ever done with the intention of being offensive. Also, it's just funny. Uh, yeah, and when The Simpsons first started out, you know, in the 80s, it was considered a very edgy show. They were meant to be edgy. There's even audio out there of President Bush saying I want um, the first President Bush, uh, H.W., saying I want American families to be less like The Simpsons and more like, I think it was The Waltons or something, some show that no one even remembers. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like they went from being this this edgy show. They were never like South Park where they went out of their way to offend everybody, but to go from doing something that was edgy when you first created the inception of it to now saying we need to please everybody, I'm I'm not... Okay, with and that. it usually doesn't roll over well with the audience as well. I mean, you, you, that's when shows start getting canceled. You know, when yeah. they start like you know just not being true to their core audience. Although I don't see The Simpsons ever getting canceled, which is almost a shame because I feel like they had a really long run of amazing shows, and then around that time that the movie came out and all that stuff, it just went very downhill. Just my opinion. I'm sure there's some diehard viewers of The Simpsons out there, but knowing this audience. I think you guys will agree on the Apu thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe taking it way too serious, you know. And we've had stereotypes of you know uh, Indian, the Indian culture for you know ever in television. I mean, look at Andy Kaufman's um, character on Taxi. 
You yeah. know, that was pretty outlandish. You know what I mean? But at that point, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, and it's different today, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and it's it's different today. Um, I think the whole South Park and the, uh, you know, Simpsons thing, it's 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 straight to the point. There's no, like, you know, uh, uh, telling it or, you know, kind of uh, smoothing out the edges. It yeah. really is, like, you know, his wife will show up with eight babies kind of stuff. And it's like, that's the stereotype that they have a lot of children. Yeah. I think South Park, <laughs> as long as they're on the air, though, will always be waving that flag, you know, in the face of political correctness, saying we're not we're not going to cater to this. I, I can't wait, honestly, and I don't see it in the near future. I just can't wait for a time where this is just not even a topic for us to talk about anymore, <laughs> because yeah. it's just like it let each let each person be who they want to be, man. And if someone wants to laugh at that, so be it. As long as no one's getting hurt, like Steve says, right? as long as you ain't hurting nobody, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I'm with it, man. All right. Well, as a reminder for all of those who are listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to SoftRep TV, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. SoftRep TV's premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV at softreptv.us and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. What are you waiting for? Sign up, softreptv.us. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've set in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. I spoke to our managing editor, The Odyssean, this morning, and we are putting the final touches on getting a Team Room uh, event set up in Vegas in January. So if you are a Team Room member or a Crate Club member, we're going to make that happen. I know it's a little late that we're setting this whole thing up, but the Odyssean is putting the final touches on it. So I'll be there in Vegas in January, along with a bunch of the guys from the site. Uh, this coming Friday, there's an event for Crate Club members uh, in New York City. at Emino Looney is a bar fighting class, <laughs> basically, with the great Jim West, former Special Forces um, I think Jason will be making an appearance. Yeah, I'm going to stop by. Why the hell not? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> I, I realized I cannot, but I will be at the uh, team room event in Vegas. But it should be awesome. I mean, just the chance to hang with Jim West and be a part of this is pretty cool. So hopefully we'll see some of you there. Um, if you're a Crate Club member, you probably got the email blast. Um, as always, follow Jason on Instagram at jdelgadoarte. I know you now have the Twitter at BountyHunterJD. I am at Ian Scotto on everything and, of course, at SoftRep Radio on Twitter, on Instagram. Thanks again to Scott for coming on. Thanks again to Wes Whitlock for the shout-out. 
I think I'm going to buy some Rogue American uh, apparel gear in the coming days because uh, I, you know, I'm all about supporting those who support us. Uh, anything else, man? That's about it, man. Killer <laughs> interview from you. I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed hearing from Scott, and I'm looking forward to him uh, coming to New York soon. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.